0: Well, the day has finally arrived. I promised you several months ago that uh, we were going to launch into our next uh, Sunday morning expositional sermon series on the book of Romans, and so I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, if you missed one of those little half sheets, the roadmap Uh, For Romans, you can sneak back to the back table right now. This might be a good time to discreetly get back there and get one of these little half sheets. It says the Romans Road or a roadmap For Romans, it would be good for you to have one of these um, so that uh, I don't lose you um, in in our study here uh, this morning. I want to begin our study by reading what is considered the introduction to this letter that Paul wrote to the Roman Christians. And it's verses 1 through 17. And while we won't be uh, able to look at much of what's here uh, this morning, um, I want to set this uh, introduction clearly uh, in our minds as this really uh, begins to unfold the, the, the richness of, um, and the, the purpose of this, of this letter. Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And here is the theme text, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Father, just the sound of this text to our ears signifies that we are standing on holy ground. There's something uniquely powerful, something uniquely precious whenever we focus on the gospel. And so, Father, as we launch into this study of this Magnificent book that you preserve for us here in the scriptures. More than ever, we need the Holy Spirit's illumination to help us wade through such weighty things, but to also make clear to us how practical they are to our daily lives. And so Lord, we know you that you promise to uh, when when your people uh, receive your word priest as it actually is your very words, that your word will accomplish its work in us. And so we trust that as we sit under the teaching of this epic book, that our lives will be transformed in epic ways. Ultimately, for your glory, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, if you've been a Christian or have been going to church for any length of time, you've gotten used to hearing and or saying a particular word very often. In fact, it might be the one word that most often goes into our ears and comes out of our mouths. You've probably heard it already multiple times this morning. You may have even said it multiple times this morning. The word I'm referring to is the gospel. The gospel. It's something we think about, talk about, preach about, sing about, all the time. And yet even though it's such a familiar term for most Christians and a common theme in most churches, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone gets it, that everyone understands what this term actually means, or or that they've truly embraced it for themselves, or that they know how to clearly share it with other people. And I think that's why it's important for the gospel to be regularly reiterated amongst us as the body of Christ, and that really serves two purposes. Number one, it provides a, a, a clear presentation of the plan of salvation for those that aren't saved with the hope that perhaps God may grant them genuine repentance and faith. See, our goal here at Lakeside Bible Church is that no one who attends this church will end up in hell. That's our goal. And we don't want anybody that attends this church to end up in hell because you've heard the gospel or you haven't heard the gospel, I guess, is the better way of saying it. Or you sat here every Sunday thinking you were saved when you're really not. And so we say it this way. We want to we make it very hard for someone to go to hell from Lakeside Bible Church. Because you're constantly being exposed to the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so it's important that we regularly hear the gospel. Uh, secondly, I think it provides a clear presentation of the gospel for those who are saved. So there's some who aren't saved, but there are those that are saved. And the hope there is that they will faithfully share the message of salvation with others. Again, our goal here at Lakeside is, is that, that everyone who attends our church will have a simple gospel outline, if you will, memorized that you can then use any time that God gives you an opportunity to witness to someone. So, so, in the same way we want to make it very hard for people to go to hell from this church, we want to make it very easy for you to share the gospel from this church. Having said that, I think there's another much less obvious reason why we need to be regularly reminded of the gospel. Especially those of us who grew up or or spent any time in a church where the gospel was preached every Sunday. Those of you that went to a church like that, you know what I'm talking about. That um, it's possible to become so familiar with something that we take it for granted. And it becomes like what we refer to as white noise. There's that background noise, like the air conditioner right now that you probably weren't even thinking about unless you were too cold, right? But it's just there and we're hearing it, but we're really not hearing it. It's just kind of there. And I think when the gospel is explained in a class or preached during a sermon, we might even have a tendency to tune it out. Because, yeah, I already know that. Um, And we don't think we necessarily need to hear it again. And so we just assume that the gospel is for unbelievers, not believers. In fact, one of the reasons why you may come to this church is because we don't re-preach the gospel every Sunday like a lot of churches. When the main point of every sermon every week is simply get saved... It's hard for a Christian to grow and mature in their faith when it's all evangelism and there's no equipping. Even so, when a church like ours is is committed to not only evangelize the lost, but also to equip the saints by preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God, the gospel oftentimes gets left in the dust. We move on from it to consider what, what we think are deeper, meatier truths. But what we need to realize is that there is no weightier truth than the gospel. There's nothing more compelling to our lives as Christians than the gospel. And while we may not re-preach the gospel in our church every week, we do need to re-preach the gospel to ourselves every day. You may be familiar with that phrase, Preaching the gospel to yourself. Over the past decade or so, there's been a a growing number of books and and blogs written about the role that the gospel plays uh, on a daily basis in the lives of of, of a Christian. And you've got books like The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges, Holiness by Grace by Brian Chappell, The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney, Because He Loves Me by Elise Fitzpatrick, How People Change by Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp, and then Christless Christianity by Michael Horton. These are just some of the books that I'm familiar with. And to my knowledge, there's no one that has written more on this subject of preaching the gospel to yourself than Jerry Bridges. And his books have have spawned most of these other books whose authors all reference him uh, in their books and their blogs. And let me just read you a little uh, snippet from... Uh, one of the shorter books that, uh, and one of the last books that, that um, Jerry Bridges wrote called The Bookends of the Christian Life. It's a great little resource. I'd encourage you to get it if you uh, don't have it. The Bookends of the Christian Life, a short little book, and it was very, very helpful. He says this, for many of us, our initial encounter with the gospel when we first trusted Christ occurred many years ago and is now a distant memory. The Christian life may now be more of a duty than a joyous response to the gospel. That's why we need to intentionally bathe our minds and hearts in the gospel every day. We need the gospel not only as a door into an initial saving relationship with Christ, but also to keep our daily lives from becoming a performance treadmill. End quote. Bridges' point is is this, that after, after coming to know Christ... Too many Christians move on from the gospel of God's grace and they begin to relate to God on the basis of what they do rather than what Christ has done for us in Christ. It's all about having your quiet time. It's all about coming to church. It's all about sharing the gospel. And on good days, when we successfully fulfill all of our duties, we feel good about our relationship with God like we've earned his favor, that he's delighted with us. But on the bad days, when we miss our quiet time, we sleep in or we miss church or miss an opportunity to witness, we oftentimes are overwhelmed with guilt and we feel like God's disappointed with us. And the key to keeping us from falling into this good day, bad day, Thinking is never forgetting this, that our acceptance before God is not based on what we do or don't do on any given day, but it's based on the obedient life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. We must never forget that our acceptance before God is not based on what we do or don't do on any given day, but on the obedient life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Is that not a breath of fresh air? And so we need to regularly ponder God's amazing love for us in that that even though we were his enemies who deserved nothing but death and hell, he poured out his wrath against our sin on his beloved son and declared us to be right with him, treated us as if we've never sinned. And we need to live in in light of the fact that because Christ died for our sins, we will never, ever have to experience God's wrath against our sin. And nothing we do or don't do can ever change our position in Christ or make God love us any more or any less. We need to remember that all of our sins, past, present, future, were forgiven at the cross and there is now no what? condemnation for those of us who are in Christ and nothing can ever separate us from what the love of God in Christ beloved that's the good news of the gospel and the gospel is God's provision for our sin not only the day we got saved but every day of our Christian lives do you still sin I still sin you know what that means you still need the gospel. It's God's provision for our sin. The gospel is something that we need from the time that we come to Christ until the time he comes back for us or takes us home to be with him in heaven. And I say all that because I think too many of us as Christians suffer from What you could call gospel amnesia. Do you suffer from gospel amnesia? Do you ever forget who you are in Christ? Do you ever forget how loved you are by God? Do you ever forget what you deserved and what you received instead? Do you ever forget that you were a spiritual orphan? who's been adopted out of the squalor of your sin by a gracious Heavenly Father and given an inheritance as a child of God? I'll never forget a few years back, we were enjoying some time as the church family over at the incredible pizza company in Conroe. And... uh, we were all milling around in that place, and everybody's running around. the kids are having a good time and and we're just talking as adults and I was talking to a, a, another guy who he and his wife had adopted this little girl from China out of one of the orphanages in, in, in China, and she's just a, a precious little girl and and uh, you know to know her story about where she had come from and what her life would have been if She had never been adopted by this mom and dad. And as I was talking to her adopted father, I I looked over and there was this little girl and she had a big piece of cherry pie and ice cream on her plate. And and it was like she was in her own little world, sitting there right under the shadow of her daddy, just, just eating pie and ice cream. And just having a great time. And I thought, what a contrast from her life in China and her life now. And as I was thinking about that and meditating on that and I was having to try to, I was multitasking because I was talking to her dad and I was watching this play out over here and I'm thinking, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. That's that's us, that little girl adopted, right, from China and, and here we are at Incredible Pizza Company, the Incredible Pizza Company, And we're eating, you know, pie and ice cream. That's the gospel. And we need to bask in the gloriousness of the gospel. And no other author can help us do that better than the Apostle Paul. Who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the greatest explanation of the gospel found anywhere, not just in the Bible, but in print. It doesn't get any better than this the book of Romans. Without question, Paul's magnum opus, which in Latin means what? Great work. We, we understand a, a person's magnum opus as their, their crowning achievement that towers above all the rest of their work because of its outstanding creativity and profundity, and it, it's usually their most well-known work. It's often referred to as a masterpiece. We all know Handel's Messiah, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, Dickens' Tale of Two Cities, Hugo's Les Miserables, Austin's Pride and Prejudice, Shakespeare's Hamlet, Melville's Moby Dick, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, Lucas's Star Wars, Spielberg's Indiana Jones, Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the Hat. And we all know about Paul's epistle to the Romans, which no one in their lifetime could ever fully mine its depths or scale its heights. This is the the Mariana Trench of the Bible, the deepest part of the ocean. This is the Mount Everest of Scripture, the, the highest point in Scripture. And I think it's It's safe to say that no other book of the Bible has had a more profound impact on the history and the theology of Christianity than Paul's letter to the Romans. In his classic commentary written back in the 1800s, the the noted Swiss theologian named Frederick Godet called Romans, quote, the cathedral of the Christian faith. The cathedral of the Christian faith. In our modern times, the British preacher John Stott likened Romans to a a kind of Christian manifesto, or as another man put it, the the, the Christian constitution, the constitution of Christianity, like the constitution of the United States of America. And so it's not surprising that that God has used the book of Romans to, to save more lives. And sparked more revivals than any other book in the Bible. And if you study church history, countless Christians throughout the centuries have, have testified that how studying Romans led to their conversion. For example, back in eighty three eighty six, a long time ago, church was just getting going at that point. There was a teacher of literature and rhetoric, rhetoric in Milan, Italy, who had been uh, living a sexually immoral lifestyle from his youth. And he came under deep conviction regarding his, his sin as a result of, of, of the biblical preaching of a godly pastor and uh, along with the faithful prayers of a godly mother. And he found himself in a, in a friend's garden, sitting there weeping over his bondage to lust when he heard a child singing, tole, tole. Lege, tole lege, which in Latin means take up and read. And so there lay an open scroll of the book of Romans beside him, and he picked it up. And the very first passage that caught his eye was Romans 13, 13, which reads, let us behave properly as in the day not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Can you imagine? A, a no, no better text for... This man to have read, and upon reading that, he, he immediately repented of his sin and received Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he went on to become one of the great fathers of the early church. We know him today as Augustine. Over a thousand years later, in 1515, an Augustinian Roman Catholic monk was teaching through the Book of Romans to his students at the University of Wittenberg, Germany, And and this man had spent his early years in a monastery uh, praying, fasting, whipping himself, constantly confessing his sins to the priest but never finding rest for his tormented soul. And the more he studied the book of Romans, particularly its theme verse, verse 17 of chapter one, the more he became convinced that a person is saved not by all the things he was trying to do, all the good works that he was trying to do, but solely by God's grace through faith alone. This life-changing revelation of Martin Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation. Luther said of his experience studying Romans Chapter 1, verse 17, he said, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. He said, this passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. He would later write in in, in the preface of his commentary in the book of Romans this, quote, this epistle is the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel." It is is worthy, not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart. How's that for a challenge as we start the study? We're going to go through this word for word, verse by verse, right? But he's saying you should know, every Christian should know this word for word by heart. Like memorize the book of Romans. But occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. In other words, you could have your quiet time in the book of Romans every day of your life and you'd have enough food for your soul, to feed your soul. He said it can never be read or pondered too much and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. In that same generation, John Calvin, another uh, leading reformer in his, in his commentary uh, on Romans said this about it. He said, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. In other words, the book of Romans is like a key that unlocks the mysteries of the Bible. About 200 years later, God used Luther's preface to Romans, not even the book of Romans itself, but the preface that he had written to Romans to convert another notable figure in church history. In the mid-1700s, an ordained minister in the Church of England sailed to America with his younger brother to serve as a chaplain to the settlers and, and missionaries, uh, and a missionary to the Indians. And uh, when he returned to England after a very discouraging season of ministry, he He reluctantly attended a a, a Moravian meeting, the Moravians were very zealous, passionate believers, and uh, so he he went uh, reluctantly to this meeting, unwillingly even, and and someone, he said, was reading from Luther's preface to Romans, Just, just reading from his commentary. And this is what John Wesley said. While he was describing the change which works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. In other words, he was a, an ordained minister, a chaplain, a missionary. Who came to the conclusion based on the teaching of the book of Romans that he wasn't truly saved? How crazy is that? It'd be be like me studying through the book of Romans and showing up one Sunday morning and saying, Hey, folks, just so you know, I finally realized I've I've never been truly saved. Here I've been serving you and and preaching and ministering, and, and, and I've been unregenerate the whole time. But now, I get it, now I'm convinced I'm truly safe. That would be radical. That was the testimony of John Wesley. The author of the most published book next to the Bible was inspired to write his classic analogy of the Christian life as he sat in prison for preaching the gospel 10 years He was locked up, and during those days, he meditated on the great themes of Romans. And as a result, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, based on his musings, his reflections on Paul's letter to the Romans. And so when you consider all of these great men, all these great movements that have left their mark on church history, there's, there's no telling what might happen to you, to me, to our church as we study Romans together. F.F. F. Bruce who's now with the Lord, he was known during his lifetime as an authority, or maybe even the authority, on the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. In his commentary on Romans, he said this. He said, similar things have happened, referring to these great conversion stories, these great revivals and reformations. He said, similar things have happened much more frequently to very ordinary men and women as the words of this letter came home to them with power. In other words, so it's fun to consider. It's, it's interesting to consider these great, well-known figures in church history that God used uh, the book of Romans to save and to spark a revival. But Bruce wants to remind us that, oh, by the way, the same kinds of things have happening, been happening a whole lot more frequently to just ordinary folks sitting in churches, on any given Sunday morning, who the words of this letter come home to them with power. And Bruce ended his introduction to his commentary with these words. He said, so be prepared for the consequences of reading farther. You have been warned. And I think that's good for us to consider that that we we need to be prepared for the consequences of reading further, of studying further. We have been warned. Warning. The gospel is powerful. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so I want to encourage us to, to all be praying that God would be pleased to use this study to the book of Romans to stir up a spiritual revival in your own soul, in your home, and definitely in our church. And that God might use it to bring many to salvation. And to remind those of us who are saved to never get over how great salvation is. Well, what I want to do with the time that we have left this morning, we have to go 1230, is that Right? I just want to make sure you're awake and listening, okay? But with the time that I have remaining, I want to simply provide you with a basic overview of Romans and just kind of make some observations throughout the book and kind of just bring you in on some of the, the things that I observed uh, the past couple of weeks as I've been trying to get my mind around this, this, this epic book, and uh, I told the elders on Wednesday that I felt like a, a mountain climber who was just kind of still, hadn't even reached the base of Mount Everest, and I was already looking for the oxygen. <laughs> but Bible study starts with just observation. That's just the first step of, of, of accurately understanding a verse or a passage or, or a book, is just to, 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 to read it. And, and to observe things. And, and, and so what I want to do is just, I want to show you the forest, if you will, so, so we don't get lost once we start to examine the trees. And so I think the, the simplest way I can begin is, is to say this, that Romans is the clearest, fullest, most systematic presentation of the gospel in all of scripture. And it serves as the doctrinal foundation for the rest of the New Testament. It's very logical, it's deeply theological, but at the same time it's refreshingly practical. And we need to keep in mind as we wade through this book together that that this this letter was not written by a dry old theologian from some dark corner in a dusty library. Here was a loyal, faithful pastor, a fiery preacher, a zealous missionary, a bold defender of the faith, a brave soldier on the front lines who'd been arrested, imprisoned, beaten and left for dead, shipwrecked, slandered, gone hungry, gone thirsty and endured many sleepless nights all for the sake of the truth he was writing about in this letter. We also need to keep in mind that that he wasn't writing to a bunch of theologians or seminary professors or Bible college students. He was writing to ordinary, everyday believers sitting in the pews in the churches in Rome. Not that there was pews, but you get the point. So I can't say that Romans is way above my pay grade As I've been thinking over the last 20 or so years, I ain't touching the book of Romans. That's way above my pay grade. I'm not about to tackle that. I mean, maybe when I get to be 70, I might be close to figuring some of it out. I can't say that. It's not above my pay grade. And you can't say it's way over your head. You can't say that. In fact, no other portion of God's word is more important for us as Christians to understand and apply than Romans. No other study will yield more answers to more questions than the book of Romans. I don't have time to read for you the many questions, but I always appreciate John MacArthur's comments in his excellent commentary series, and he had about a page worth of question after question after question after question after question question, that the book that we often ask or that are often asked, that are answered through the pages of Romans. But if we're to understand this book, just even on a basic level, we we have to know, first of all, who wrote it, who it was written to, and why it was written And we have some help here, because like every ancient letter, the letter begins with the author's name. What's the very first word you see in your Bibles? You don't have a name there? Paul, thank you. We'll make sure you guys are tracking with me. So we have the name Paul, which was his Roman name. He was originally named, what? Saul. Probably after King Saul, the first king of Israel, and Paul was born and raised in the Greek city of Tarsus. Uh, He was a Roman citizen, and yet he was a devout Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. He was trained under the famous uh, Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. He became an outstanding rabbi himself, just a brilliant guy. He was a Pharisee. Um, He was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the 70-member council that ruled all the, the religious political affairs of Israel. But what's most notable about Paul is that he was an outspoken leader of the anti-Christian movement in Jerusalem. He hated Christians with a passion and had devoted his life to stamping out Christianity. Again, I wish we had time to read some of these accounts, but I'm assuming that you are familiar with Paul's testimony. You can look at the book of Acts, Acts 7 Eight and nine; those three chapters uh, paint a, a, a really a, a, an unforgettable picture of of the transformation uh, that that took place in Paul's life uh, when he went from being the number one persecutor of the church to the number one preacher of the church. Romans nine, in particular, shares. Uh, Luke records the testimony of his conversion, how he was traveling to the city of Damascus with, with uh, papers, uh, permission. To, they gave him permission to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem and to uh, uh, really execute them was his goal. And, and that's when the Lord Jesus miraculously and dramatically saved him and told him that he had been set apart to preach the gospel the Gentiles. And um, as you know, he got radically saved, and, and then he immediately began to preach the gospel. In Damascus, where he had gone, he was headed to arrest Christians. Now he's there wanting to meet the Christians, and he's wanting to preach the gospel. And they're all going, okay, something's not right here. This smells fish. Something's fishy about this. And they all kind of backed away and kept him at arm's length. They, didn't, they thought, this guy, maybe he's a trick. And so he had a hard time breaking into the body of Christ. They weren't buying it. He was the last guy on planet Earth that anybody thought would ever get saved. And now he showed up and he's saying he's a Christian and he's preaching the gospel. And so he ended up spending three years alone in the Arabian desert, probably receiving direct revelation from the Holy Spirit at the time, God teaching. He went, went to school, if you will, out in the desert, and it was he and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was his professor. And then he was invited by Barnabas, a fellow believer, to co-pastor a church in Antioch. And the church, as you know, eventually sent Paul and Barnabas out together as missionaries to preach the gospel and plant churches throughout Asia Minor and and Macedonia and Achaia. And Paul made how many journeys? Three would be the right number. Paul made three missionary journeys, each recorded by his personal doctor uh, who traveled with him, uh, Luke, uh, who wrote the book of Acts. So they're all recorded there in the book of Acts. And as you put the, the historical data together, looking at the book of Acts, looking at Paul's other epistles, it, it becomes clear that on his third missionary journey, Paul revisited the church in Corinth to take up a collection for the impoverished, uh, persecuted believers in Jerusalem, and he stayed there about three months, during which time he wrote this letter to the believers in Rome with the help of a co-laborer named Tertius. Look at chapter 16, verse 22, verse 22. Simple observation, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. And so, Tertius served as Paul's amanuensis. Paul um, basically transcribed, he just transcribed the letter um, for Paul. Paul dictated the letter, if you will. And Tertius wrote it down. Stay there in chapter 16, because we also find there a woman named Phoebe, who was moving to Rome from Sincria, which was a village on the eastern harbor of Corinth, and so she was the perfect candidate to deliver this, this letter to the house churches in Rome. Chapter 16, verse 1, I commend to you, our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sancria, that you receive her in the Lord, and a men are worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter. She may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. So we can assume that maybe she was the, the delivery person, the UPS, to get this letter to, to the churches there. Now, contrary to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, the church in Rome was not established by Peter or any other apostle for that matter, including Paul. Uh, We know that Peter was still in Jerusalem around AD 50, which was the, the time of the Jerusalem Council recorded in Acts 15. Paul wrote this letter around AD 57. It's hard to imagine that Paul would write a letter to the churches in Rome and not address or mention Peter if he was the apostle in residence there. The point is he wasn't. The church in Rome was, was most likely a, a lay movement started by those who returned to Rome after experiencing the miracle of Pentecost. Remember, they all came to Jerusalem. They saw the miracle. They got saved. They were baptized. And then they went back all over Uh, to where they had come from. And so it may have been some of these converts from Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, went back and started a church there uh, in Rome. Uh, Also, those who maybe lived in other um, uh, parts of the Roman Empire where the gospel had spread, they then migrated to Rome. Based on the number of people that that Paul greets, by name at the end of the letter in, in, in chapter 16, uh, it seems some of the church members were either his converts or co-laborers from other parts of the Roman Empire where Paul had ministered the gospel. And the reason why I'm referring to the church as churches, because you get the sense here in, in, at the end of, or in, in chapter 16, that he's referring to multiple churches and they were probably house churches. For example, verse 5, also greet the church that is in their house talking about Priscilla and Aquila were leaders of a house church. And then later on in verses 14 and 15, greet uh, these folks and the brethren with them, greet these folks and all the saints who are with them. And so it's almost like, okay, you had a group over here, you had a group over here, you had a group over here. This was a a city at the time of some four million people. Definitely a, a place where you needed more than one church, especially because of how large it was. And spread out. And so while, based on chapter 16, while while Paul had never been to Rome, it's clear that he had a significant impact on the establishment of churches in the imperial city. And so at the beginning of this letter and at the end of this letter, he clearly stated his desire to visit Rome. And minister to the believers there and be used by God to encourage them and build them up in their faith. If you just look at uh, chapter 1 again, verse 10. He says, I'm praying if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you and that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so for my part I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Turn over to chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 19. He's talking about his ministry, and he says, So that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, which is modern-day Albania, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. In other words, I, 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 I went all over, Asia Minor and Macedonian, and and I fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. In other words, I'm looking for a new mission field where no one has ever preached the gospel before. For this reason, I've often been prevented from coming to you, verse 22, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Verse 24 seems like a, a verse you could just easily just skim over, but he basically just said, hey, I'm really not wanting to come see you as much as I want to get to Spain, but Rome is the perfect rest stop on my way to Spain, and I'm looking forward to seeing you and spending some time with you. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they are pleased to do so, and they were indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on the way... On by way of you to Spain. So he's really not, Spain or Rome is not his goal. The end game is Spain. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Now notice verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. So what do we glean from these, just observing these almost kind of housekeeping type of comments that he's making? There's not any deep theology there. He's just talking about his travel plans. Well, what we can discern is that Paul was wrapping up his final missionary journey The task of preaching the gospel and planting churches in Asia Minor and Macedonia and Achaia was complete. Now he had his sights set on taking the gospel to the west, namely to Spain. So after dropping off this benevolent offering to the Jerusalem saints, he planned to travel to Rome and then on to Spain. And no doubt, Paul saw the capital city of the Roman Empire, which was the largest most influential city in the world at the time as the ideal launching point for the gospel into Spain and beyond. Much like Antioch served as the base of operation for his ministry in Asia Minor, this would be, Rome would be the new Antioch. The churches in Rome would be the new Antioch church. As the old adage says, all roads lead where? To Rome, which made this teeming metropolis the natural hub for Paul's strategy to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so having been able to to visit Rome up until then, Paul wanted to introduce himself to the believers there, but even more importantly, give a summary of his message. In the hope, here it is, really simple, don't mean to let you down, why did Paul write this letter? He hoped that they would partner with him in his future missionary endeavors through their prayers and material resources. And at the time that he was writing this, he had no idea what might what he might encounter at the hands of the Christ-hating, Christ-rejecting Jews in Jerusalem. But surely he knew he could get arrested, maybe even killed. And as we know, he did get arrested and ended up making it to Rome and only to Rome as far as Rome, not as a free man, but as a what? As a prisoner. So I think in light of what Paul knew could happen in Jerusalem, when he sat down to write this letter, he was writing it as if it could have been his last letter. We know it wasn't. Second Timothy had opportunity later on to write a few more letters, but in his mind, this could be it. This could be my last letter. And so the Spirit of God as he did with all the other writers of scripture he utilized their own experience their own expertise and so the spirit of god utilized paul's 20 years of pondering and preaching and defending the gospel and directed him to write out a comprehensive summary of the gospel of god not just for the christians in rome as that's what he was thinking But to be preserved for Christians in every location and in every generation. Someone wrote this about Romans. They said, Here is the touchstone or the standard by which all that claims to be Christian must be tested. It gives the heart of the gospel without which there can be no salvation. And so I think it goes without saying, Romans is all about the gospel. Paul used the, the word ten times throughout the letter, four times uh, in the first 16 verses alone. And the key Verse, as I mentioned, is verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And you assume he's just going to begin talking about the righteousness of God. But if you know anything about the book of Romans, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, Verse 20, Paul takes this massive rabbit trail to talk about the unrighteousness of man. Before you can appreciate the righteousness of God, you need to understand the unrighteousness of man. In other words, that that God has what we lack. And, And so he kicks back in to this whole concept of the gospel being the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. In chapter 3, verse 21, look at this with me, and I want to read this this morning because this is really the heart of, God. you want to know what the heart of the book of Romans is? You want to know the heart of the gospel? Here it is. Verses 21 to 26, you should see this as the, the heart of the book of Romans, just pulsating there. We found it. It's right here. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction, i.e., between Greeks and, and, and Jews Gentiles and Jews, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So while the book is about the gospel, generally speaking, more specifically, Romans is about the righteousness of God that he graciously gives to every sinner who forsakes trying to get right with him. That's what it means to be righteous, right with God, who who tries to get right with him by their own good works and, and instead trusts in his work that he's done through the life and death of his son, Jesus Christ, for their salvation, which, which ultimately, this righteousness ultimately results in them living a righteous life befitting of one who has been freely and mercifully rescued from sin, death, and hell. That's Romans 12, 1, the hinge on which this book turns. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, in light of everything I've just Described to you in chapters 1 through 11 to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So having said all that, that's why I chose to title this series on the book of Romans The Glorious Gospel, How a Gracious God Makes Guilty Sinners Right with Him Through Faith in Jesus, amen? There's more I would like to say, but I want to stop here so the nursery workers don't hate my guts. We'll have to pick up here next week. But if you could, take out that road map for Romans that I encourage you to have. Keep this in the front of your Bible or in the front of Romans. This will, I think, hopefully serve you as an invaluable um, guide. And this is the, the, the fruit of milk and a lot of cows. And, and but churning my own butter and what I mean by that is I, I'm, I'm bleary eyed from how many outlines I looked at for the book of Romans all very very helpful all influenced this particular outline but this is an outline that that I came up with for my own sake so I knew where I was going if I don't know where I'm going how are you guys gonna know where I'm going right so this was helpful for me to do hopefully it will serve you well But hopefully you'll see the logical flow of the book, the gospel of God explained, the doctrinal section 1 through 11, the gospel of God applied, the practical section verses 12 through 16, but then notice the emphasis on the righteousness of God or the lack thereof when it comes to our sin. But uh, hopefully some of you are already saying, well, that's useless, I can't even read it so small, right? Get a magnifying glass; it'll work. Um, and then on the back, the Roman's Road—something that I'm sure most of you have heard of before. Uh, you might have wondered, "What is the Roman's Road?" Well, there it is. And again, there's there's plenty of versions of the Roman's Road, but basically, the Roman's Road uh, is a simple way to walk someone through God's plan of salvation, just using a, a series of select verses in the Book of Romans. And this is the general flow that is most often used. Um, over the years, this is a, a way of sharing the gospel that I learned when I was young and uh, I've used it countless times to just walk somebody through the gospel. And uh, I just wanted to have that available to you so that if you don't have a a plan of salvation memorized that you can, uh, or, or handy, that you can keep somewhere and maybe in your desk at work or in your backpack at school and you, you're sitting at the lunch room or something in the cafeteria and somebody, you get into a conversation, hey, whip this sucker out and, and just say, hey, can I, can I read for you some things and just read through uh, these verses, which explain the, the gospel, which, by the way, is the power of God. It's powerful. Just, just reading verses, just straight scripture from Romans is, is powerful. powerful to change lives. One last example, I'll never forget our first apartment, husband and wife, our next door neighbor, uh, we invited over to have dinner with us and and he just wanted to argue about about God and about sin and about everything and and, and I didn't know what to do and we just kind of kept going back and forth and I didn't feel like I was making any headway at all and he he wouldn't listen to anything I had to say and, and, and we were just trying to be good neighbors and share Christ with him and I finally said, hey, can I just read you something? And I pulled out the book of Romans and I began to read Romans chapter one. And that was the first time he sat silent the entire dinner because there was something powerful. When I stopped, when he stopped hearing my words and started hearing God's word, that made all the difference in the world. And so let's use this Romans road. Let's wear it out. For the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. I wish we had more of it because there was more that could have been said, but Lord, I pray that that's enough to get us excited about all that there is to uncover in this, this great book. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to cherish the gospel more than ever and feel more compelled than ever to share, share it with others. And so, Lord, um, I pray you take the things we've heard today and apply them to our lives. For your namesake we ask in Jesus' name, amen.